0: Well, several years ago, my family and I, we went to the circus, and it was a pretty big circus. It was in an arena, had three rings, and lots of cool stuff was going on, and, and it seemed like they had this thing figured out. They were all doing a really good job. The, the high wire acts were all safe and precise, and all of the other things going on seemed to just be in sync. Until we got to the lions, there was this cage... Uh, on the other side of the arena but we could still see it pretty well and the trainer got into this cage with these lions and it started out great getting them to go up on these platforms and to do different things and they were responding to his commands but then there was this point where his voice changed a little bit he recognized the lions weren't being as submissive as he wanted them to be and you could see these lions start to get in a, a little bit of a crouching stance and growl a little bit at him and the whole arena started to physically change. We, my wife and I looked at each other and kind of went, oh no, are we about to see a man killed by his own lions? Are we going to have to cover the eyes of our children? Is this really happening right now? It didn't seem like it was part of the act, and the whole arena felt it. You could feel the tension. And then you saw the, the crew of the circus start to recognize what was going on, and some guys running over to the cage, and there's these other smaller cages, and they worked to get these... Uh, the, these lions into, uh, into their smaller cages and fortunately avoided disaster. It, it, was, it was pretty iffy there for a moment. But it, it ultimately made me realize how powerful these lions are and how quickly they could turn on their trainer. And then looking at James in chapter 3, as I was preparing, I thought, as James says, the tongue is less tameable Than the most wild beasts. The tongue is less tameable than these lions that can turn on their trainer like that. What a powerful image for us to keep in the back of our minds and in our hearts as we unpack James 3 this morning. If you would turn to James 3, we're going to be in the first 12 verses this morning together, talking about the power, the destructive power of the tongue, and what we should do in response to this truth. And while you're turning there, one thing I'd like you to keep in mind this morning as part of the backdrop is that it's hard to separate the tongue from your actual self. Luke 6:45 says this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. There's a connection between your heart Your existence and who you are, as the Bible talks about the heart in this way, and what you say. There's really no disconnect there. Whatever comes out of your mouth is ultimately diagnosing the health of your heart. It's also important to note that the tongue is mentioned in every chapter in James. Pretty remarkable. Here's this book in the Bible that James is putting forward to say, this is how you should behave as a biblical Christian. A lot of people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. Some people think it's a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. What an incredible thing. It says to us that in this book, talking about biblical behavior, the tongue is mentioned in every single chapter. And why is it such a big deal? Well, Matthew twelve thirty six and 37 says this. A terrifying couple of verses here. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Words are eternal. So not only are they incredibly important, powerful, destructive, they can be used to encourage as well, but they're also eternal. And we should ultimately count the cost of our words as we see these scriptures to explain how important and eternal they are. And Paul uses the tongue to describe man's total depravity. In Romans, Paul is... Sharing how destructive man's depravity is in the extent of our depravity, and he chooses to talk about our mouth in this in Romans 3:10 through18, "None is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So with all of those verses in the backdrop, and this idea of the tongue being so important to James, let's read our passage this morning. Please read along as I read out loud these first 12 verses. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, in those first two verses in our passage, James presents a caution regarding the responsibility of what we say. You know, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Point one, admit that your tongue is a potential problem. Admit that your tongue is a potential problem. Although not many of you will become teachers in the sense of getting up and teaching as maybe I am this morning or Pastor Ben might, we're going to see James is really setting the table for the moment that you have responsibility over people. The more people that you have responsibility for or you speak to, the more you will be held accountable for those words. He's saying when you start speaking to larger groups of people and you're teaching them the word of God, be careful. Be weary. Make sure you're called to that and you're equipped to do that because you will be held accountable. And many rabbis, they were proud men looking at their position with prestige. And it's important to remember as we've been going through the book of James when I've been up here, that these are Jewish Christians he's speaking to. These are men and women who were in the Jewish faith and Jewish culture, and they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and repented and put their faith in Christ, but they still have a lot of that baggage, a lot of that understanding that it's prestigious to be a rabbi. Maybe they weren't counting the cost of what that actually meant because we know from the the gospel accounts and from even what we've been studying in John that many of these teachers were serious hypocrites. They didn't match their walk with their talk, and that was a big problem. Matthew 23, 5-7 says this, They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbis by others. Also during this time, it's important to know that many non-sanctioned rabbis were teaching in the synagogues at times. And it was common in the early church for some Christian men to be speaking as well. And today we have several positions in our church that start to ratchet up the responsibility. I mean, if you're a life group in this church, you're opening the Word of God. You're not just facilitating a group anymore. You're a life group leading people in the Word of God, leading a discussion about what it means. There's a higher accountability to that. Maybe you're serving in the kids' ministry and you're teaching them the Word of God. There's a higher accountability to that than those who don't. Maybe you're leading in the youth ministry or just a ministry leader in general. We need to count the costs and understand our words are going to be held more accountable to the more when we have more people that we're responsible for and we're speaking to. And James his warning here is not to dissuade us from being teacher but rather requiring us to count the cost of doing it wrongly. To sin as a teacher is to sin with a megaphone on behalf of God. It's a terrifying thought and it's one that should dissuade many people from being a teacher. The risk is that we might misrepresent the Lord and steer many wrong. But the reward comes when we are a true ambassador of God. Something for us to consider. And James also says we all stumble in many ways. No one is exempt from the dangers of the tongue. We're in the greatest danger of sinning with the tongue when we think that we're exempt. Maybe we've been walking with the Lord for a long time in our lives and We feel like we have matured in the Lord, and that's good, but we should always be on guard. And we're going to learn more about the deceptive nature of the tongue, but we should always be on guard for its attacks. James highlights the power of the tongue. Now, as he continues, starting in the second half of verse 2, we're going to learn about the immense power of the tongue. Okay, we all know it's a possible problem for us, but how much power does this thing called the tongue actually have? He says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to Bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, if you're riding a horse, and that horse happens to be a horse that needs a bit to be ridden, and that bit falls out of their mouth while you're riding that horse, it could end very badly for you. You could get very injured because you no longer have control over this large muscular beast that you're riding. Now, if you're in a great ship and its rudder or rudders fall off in the middle of the ocean, now you're at the mercy of the sea and hundreds of people could die. And if you lose control of your tongue, it could have eternal consequences. That's what James is saying here. So point number two, respect the power of the tongue. Respect the power of the tongue. Now when James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, the word perfect is probably speaking of a mature or complete man, just like we talked about back in chapter 1 of James. So this isn't like perfect as Jesus is perfect, but it's more of a perfect or complete, meaning a mature person becoming all that God wants them to be. And I think the point he's making here is that as we grow to be more like Christ in our walk, we should see and we will see more control over our tongue. And We'll get into that more. Is it possible to not stumble in what we say? Not completely, but as our heart conforms to be more Christ-like, we grow in self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, and therefore grow in our ability to control the tongue. And I'm sure that we can all attest, those of us that have been walking with the Lord for some time, we can all attest to this. We've seen that in our lives. That as we've grown more in Christ, different things have come out of our mouth. We have said different things. We have not said different things. And I'm sure if we all think about our walk, I know I can attest to this. As I've grown in Christ, a lot less has come out of my mouth. I've spoken a lot less. And it's been more refined and more thought through, more in alignment with James 1.19 perhaps. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's where we should be on the timeline of sanctification with our words. And Christ, he was the ultimate example of this. As we see in 1 Peter 2.21-23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ was the most misrepresented man to ever live. And when he was on the cross, he was even being misrepresented at that very moment. People were yelling things about him that weren't true while he was dying for them. If you and I were on that cross, I guarantee some words would be said. Consider the self-control that Jesus Christ had to not say what he probably wanted to say and was tempted to say, but he had perfect self-control as the perfect man. And as we grow to be more like him, we will see that more in our life. We will even surprise ourselves sometimes with the sanctification we see of our tongue. We think about what we might want to say or what we're tempted to say, but we stop. Praise God. We see growth in our life to be more like Christ through our tongue. We see that a controlled tongue is, as he says, able also to bridle his whole body. The tongue is so powerful that as it goes, so goes the whole person. What a thought. What a thought that this tiny thing, our tongue, our mouth, the words that come out, they're connected to our whole person. What an important, powerful thing for us to know. In other words, the nature of your speech can dictate the health of your spiritual life. It's important for us to have in the backdrop as we continue. In verse 3, it says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, a bit fits on the tongue of a horse and uses kind of displeasure or discomfort to guide the head of the horse. And as the head goes, so does the horse. And I went online and searched, do all horses need bits? And I Ended up stumbling across a hot debate online on whether horses should have bits or not. Go figure in this world that there was a debate on this. And the reason why there was a debate on this is because it does cause displeasure in the horse. So, um, you know, all the PETA folks, they were all excited about saying bits shouldn't be in the Miles' horses because horses should never experience any discomfort. And the other side was saying, well, you can't really ride a lot of horses without a bit. So what do we do? Well, that wasn't the point of my research, The point of my research was that the fact that it causes displeasure or discomfort to steer the horse. And I want to ask you this when you've gotten something off your chest and you've said something emotionally when you knew you shouldn't have and you kind of want to rein it in after you're done, did you feel a bit of pleasure in that? I know I have. Angry outbursts, there's a moment of pleasure. Saying things that are emotional, that are painful and hurtful to other people, there's a bit of pleasure because it gets it off our chest. We get to unload our problems onto somebody else. And so every time that we have self-control, just like the horse guiding its head, we have discomfort steering our body with our tongue. There's some displeasure there because we have to go forego the pleasure of sin, the pleasure of the sinful act of sinning with our tongue. In verse 4, we continue with another analogy. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So I wanted to find out what is the largest cruise ship on the planet right now, and I found out it's something called Symphony of the Seas. I want to give you some stats for how big this cruise liner is. 1,184 feet long, 216 feet wide. I don't know if we all have an understanding or respect for how big that is, but I think the passenger load will get us there, 6,680 passengers, 2,200 crew. So now we're up almost to 9,000 people, 16 decks, four outdoor pools. Now, I've never been on a cruise before, but I think it would be kind of a fascinating thing to swim in a pool on a boat that's on the ocean. That's a pretty fascinating thought, and some of you have done that. But I looked at some pictures, and and it looks like a city. This boat is so big. There's this pathway down the middle of it. And because there's these 16 decks, it's like you're walking downtown with large buildings. This is an incredible boat. It's a ship, a cruise liner. It's huge. And if you thought that was crazy, there's an aqua theater that seats 600 people. Now you can go to a water show on a ship on the ocean. With 600 of your friends. That's crazy to me. How big is this thing? Unbelievable. But it's important to realize that the whole course of this ship, the safety of all those almost 9,000 people relies on something as small as a rudder. This ship probably has three of them. Imagine if they fall off in the middle of the sea. All of these people would be at the peril of the sea. At the mercy of the sea. With no direction. What a thought that James is comparing our tongue to something like this. The greatest careers, the best reputations have been brought down with a word. And we can all attest to that. We've seen it happen. And it's incredibly sad. But that's the power of the tongue. And this analogy wraps up by saying wherever the will of the pilot directs, if we're the pilot, we're in trouble. We all know that. Those of us that have put our trust in Christ, truly put our trust in Christ, we've thrown him the keys. He's the pilot. He needs to be the pilot of our tongue, so to speak, of our body, of our life in Christ. Because if our tongue is directed by our own thoughts and actions in our own flesh or Satan himself, as he tempts us to sin with our tongue, we're in big trouble. Think about before you were saved. Not just when you were a young Christian. Think about before you were saved. What did you talk about? How did you speak? And I'm sure we can all say, yeah, we'd be embarrassed by what we said. But I actually think if I had a time machine and took us back to before we were saved and actually got to watch our life, we'd be horrified on what we talked about, what came out of our mouths. We probably have no concept as a new creation as to exactly what we sounded like before we were saved by the blood of Christ. But if God's the pilot, then our tongue will steer us to righteousness. Our words are the thermometer of our sanctification in a lot of ways. As we grow to be more like Christ, as God sanctifies us, so should the language that comes out of our mouth. There should be a very uh, one-to-one relationship with the graph chart of our sanctification and the words and the righteousness that comes out of our mouth. That should be a relationship that exists in our life. And verse 5 starts by saying, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. As the tongue goes, so goes the whole body. But the world wants you to think that words don't matter. And I want to issue a warning to us as a church. That no matter what's going on in the world, even though we come here week in, week out, and in our homes we study the Word of God, we have to be on guard against the world rubbing off on us. and Starting to think like the world. And think about the, way, the tongue in the way that they do. If we notice, the world is very comfortable with everybody expressing themselves in whatever they, way they want to, giving in fully to their sin, letting the lions out of the cage, and just going wild. And we need to remember that's not at all what God has called us to. That is not freedom. The freedom we find is in the restraint by Christ's righteousness. And we need to remember that with our tongues because more and more the world's gonna do two things it's gonna ask you to speak sinfully and it's going to ask you to not speak biblically and so we need to become bold in our denial to speak the things that God says us not says not to and we need to be bold to speak the things he says to speak all the more as they tell us not to and as the world grows darker and contrary and combative to God's word Going back to our passage, James is now going to highlight the destruction of the tongue, the destructive power. He's already told us how powerful it is. He's painted a great picture for the power of the tongue. But we're going to find out this tongue is destructive. It can cause a lot of damage. Starting in the second half of verse 5, we read, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, just like those lions in the cage. But no man, no human being, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Point three, keep this deadly weapon caged. just want to start there and think about caging this deadly weapon of the tongue in our Bibles, in my Bible at least, The heading for this passage, which the headings are not inspired. They're not God-breathed. A man came up with this heading, taming the tongue. I think that's wrong. I think you should be caging the tongue or controlling the tongue. Because James even says in this passage, we cannot tame the tongue. Only by God's self-control. And we'll find out what that means to cage the tongue in a little bit. But only by God's self-control can we have victory over the things that come out of our mouth. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Fire is unique in the fact that it will burn forever if it has fuel. It's an incredible analogy when you think about it that way. As long as we give fuel to the fire of our tongue, it will continue to burn. From one small match, you could burn thousands of acres and damage much property and kill many people. That's the power of fire, and that's what James is comparing it to here when he talks about the destructive nature of the tongue. I read about the great Chicago fire. You probably have heard about this before back in the 1800s, 1871. It was started by a cow kicking over a lantern in a barn. That's how it started, something that small and insignificant. Let me tell you the damage it did. 17,500 buildings destroyed. 300 people died. And 125,000 people were left homeless. And think about that. That's a city. That's the size of a pretty decent-sized city. 125,000 people were left homeless by a cow kicking over a lantern in a barn. And this is what we're talking about here with the destructive nature of the tongue. Let's make that connection in our minds. Verse 6 says, the tongue is fire, just like one small match or a cow Taking over a lantern can set an entire city ablaze. From one small word, you can do indefinite damage to somebody. Proverbs 16.27 says, A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. Proverbs 26.20 says, For a lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. What is the fuel to the fire of our tongue? Quarreling, whispering, gossiping. All of the behavior, ultimately, that God says is now becoming of a redeemed Christian. That's the fuel that continues the blaze of our sinful tongue. And now, continuing in verse 6, James lays out a few deadly descriptions of the tongue. He starts to describe it a little bit. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. You know, we can do good works with our hands and our feet while our tongue defiles. You know, we could, we could be the greatest servant at Compass Bible Church. We could do the setup. We could go serving kidsmen. We could do the teardown. We could serve at Awana. We could lead a life group. We could be doing all of the things that you could possibly be doing to serve in this church. Yet if our tongue has no self-control, we could burn all of that down. It could become worthless. Thinking about what Pastor Ben said last week, when we became Christians, Jesus Christ didn't put a stamp on our forehead to externally mark us as Christians. How are we known? By our love. The internal love that we have that comes out. How? A great connection to what he was saying. How is that mostly going to come out? Through our mouth. Most of the time when we love those in our lives, it's going to come out of our tongue. That's how we will be known as Christians. Now, if you connect that to 1 Corinthians 13, what we talked about with the man at a call to arms, if you do all those things, you serve in all those positions, and you do all those great works, but you have not love, it adds up to what? Zero. It's worthless. It's worthless. And where does that love come from typically? From our mouth. That's how important this is. We burn our whole body down. We render everything else we're doing worthless by the lack of self-control with our tongue. He says, setting on fire the entire course of life. That's where he goes next. Setting on fire the entire course of life. Now, I think all of us can understand the idea of setting our own life on fire we've probably said things like i said the minute they come out of our mouth we wish there was a rope attached we could pull it back in and we see the consequences to our own life but how often do we consider that we can ruin the life of others with our own words when we think about things like gossip slander false accusations lying filthy language flattery and blasphemy you know with those things alone which is not an exhaustive list you can destroy a family You could destroy a school. For many of you that are still in school, you can destroy the lives of many inside your school with just your words. seen it happen in a church. You know, I think this is a good moment to maybe challenge our church a little bit to say that as a church, when we're talking about gossip, when we're talking about the destructive nature of the tongue, I want to challenge all of us to think a little bit more about what that looks like in the church. You know, the number one way that we can be tempted to gossip in the church is with our spouse. And I want us to be challenged a little bit with that, where a discussion about the life group we just joined or the the meeting we just had or the sermon or a time in serving, a discussion about that can turn into complaining and bitterness. We can feel each other's fire with gossip. Our tongues can be the source of the damage caused throughout the church. And so I want to say I think the first thing that you should do in your home when you're talking with a spouse or even somebody within the church, the first thing that you should do when something gets brought up is saying, hey, time out. Have you talked directly to that person? Have you talked to them about what you're thinking about in love and in truth and confronting them? Biblical conflict resolution might be the number one way that a church can remain healthy. So many times I sit and I meet with people for even counseling. And where did it start? A lack of self-control and biblical conflict resolution. Gossip starts and the fire is set ablaze. Before you know it, there's disunity. And where's God, where's the enemy going to attack in this church ultimately as the day grows nearer and as the world grows darker? Darker trying to make us have a lack of unity. So the second thing you should do is say, have you prayed about it? I think the third thing to do is pray together. But be on guard with the enemy's temptation to gossip in your own family, with your own spouse, because many times we're so comfortable with our spouse that we don't even know we're doing it. It's just become second nature to have those conversations with each other in our home. So how often do you talk about others in a critical or complaining way? And even worse, how often do you do this without ever speaking to that person? Something to wrestle with this morning because we all are called to biblical conflict resolution which looks like this going directly to the person and talking to them and just take that first step god has grown many a great relationships by confronting people in truth and love that's not what the world does the world thrives on being passive-aggressive and saying things behind people's backs and not confronting things head-on. That's why social media is ablaze. It's easy to talk behind people's backs and be passive-aggressive without being face-to-face with them. Let's be different as a church. That's how we're going to show our love to the world, that we are believers in Christ and that we trust the Lord, is by being unified in that. Then he says, set on fire by hell. Our tongue is set on fire by hell. What a bold statement. The verb tense presents the idea that it is a continuous state. A continuous state of burning. Now this is the one instance where the word Gehenna for hell is used outside of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the one time. In the other, in the Gospels, Jesus has used this word to describe eternal torment and punishment. But here he's using it to talk about the tongue. And I want to unpack that a little bit because it means the valley of Hinnom. This is a deep pit southwest of Jerusalem where garbage, the bodies of dead animals, and executed criminals were dumped and continually burned. That's my tongue? That's nasty. That's disgusting. But that's what James is saying about our tongue. But he says, wait, there's more. This location was originally used by the Canaanite worshipers to sacrifice their children to Molech. People would walk up to this pit and throw their living children into this fiery burning pit as a sacrifice to a false God. How sad is that? What a horrible place this is. And after this was halted, it was concern, content, it was um, thought to be an unclean place, which understandably, this is a horribly unclean place. But James is saying, this is an unclean place right here. We need to recognize that. But he says, he takes it one step further, really, because... The fire was always burning and there was people in there decaying. There were maggots. They were always present. And that's why Jesus used Gehenna to describe the unending torment of hell and even talks about where the worms don't die in Mark 9.48. It's a pretty disgusting place. We need to realize the destructive nature of our tongue is like a pit filled with burning bodies and garbage and fire and nastiness. That's what we're up against here. And hell is ultimately prepared as a place for Satan and his demons. So when the tongue is set on fire by hell, it's not only acting on behalf of our sinful flesh, but also as Satan's tool. We're tempted by Satan to use our tongue for his purposes and not God's. Given into our temptations, our tongue becomes like Gehenna, like this place. So I want to say this. The next time that something unholy, unrighteous is about to come out of your mouth, I want you to think about having a mouth full of maggots. I almost didn't say that. It actually makes me a bit queasy. My heart rate just went up. I don't like the thought of that myself. Actually, yeah, I'm getting a little lightheaded. I don't like that. But I said it to haunt us, to put this visual in our minds for the rest of our lives that when we speak of the things that are sinful, that's what our mouth is. That's what it's like. That's how disgusting it should be to us. Now, starting again in verse 7, we read, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The wildest and smartest animals, they can be tamed. But it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of time. That's why many of you have dogs that don't behave, because you didn't want to take the time or the hard work to train them. And some of you do have dogs that behave because you took the time to train them and to tame them, to follow your commands, and to do what you want to do. We can take lions and we can tame them. We can take the most deadly, ferocious animals and tame them, but the tongue cannot be tamed. That's what he's saying. In verse 8 it says, But no human being can tame the tongue. No matter how much work and time we put in on our own, we can't have victory over this thing we call the tongue. The tongue is less controllable than the most dangerous animals on the planet. And I think it's important for us to notice that a distinct sign of biblical wisdom and maturity is brevity. That'll help us start to understand what it means to cage the tongue. As we unpack these three verses, think about it, what it means in terms of caging our tongue. First, David says in Proverbs 14.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. There's a door on my lips, and only God can open it. God, seal up my lips until it's time for you to talk through me, for me to speak of the things that are true about you, for me to speak of the things that are befitting of a redeemed soul. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. It's not just a great worship song. This is a way of living for the Christian. We need to let our words be few. Very few words should really get out. And I can guarantee that the more you've walked with the Lord, the less that you've probably said in your life. I know many of the mature, seasoned saints with a little more gray hair on their head in this church, and I've spent time with them. And many times when I come across a mature Christian who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, goes all the way back to James 1.19, they're quick to hear, they're slow to speak, and they're slow to anger. They're patient, they're calm. They don't speak emotionally. The more that they grow like Christ, the more that they cage their tongue and they don't let it out unless it's complying with scripture. Proverbs 17:28 says even a fool who keeps silent this is one of my favorite proverbs by the way even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips he is deemed intelligent. Even the watching world understands that saying less is a sign of wisdom. Right? We need to understand that part of caging our tongue is not letting it out as often. It's not saying as much counting the cost of our words much more often. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Scripture is clear that talking less, taking time to process before talking, and never talking when we're angry, those are all great ways to cage the deadly weapon, the deadly beast, so to speak, of the tongue. But James even warns us here, saying that the tongue is a restless evil. The idea of fighting hard to free itself from captivity. I think David understood this in the psalm that we read, right? Our tongue wants to get out. It's like that lion in the cage wanting to devour its prey. Our tongue wants to get out. It wants to do damage. The guard that watches over your mind and your heart, it gets no breaks. And one way to do this is what Pastor Ben has said several times, read and pray every single day. Read your Bible and pray every single day. It's that simple. We need to guard our hearts and minds by knowing and understanding Scripture, knowing who God is and what God expects of our lives and being obedient to what he says in Scripture. And we need to pray for God to give us the strength through him to even speak with words that align with what Scripture says. We need to read our Bible and pray every day to keep the guard up because our tongue, it wants to get up. And James says, oh, and heads up, it's full of deadly poison as if it wasn't worse. It's bad enough. It's full of deadly poison. Our tongues contain more deadly poison than that of a deadly snake. And I looked up what venom does. I thought I knew, but this is helpful. I'll read this. Venom may cause changes in blood cells, prevent blood from clotting. So this is if you get bitten by a poisonous snake. This is what the venom's doing inside of you. And it damages blood vessels, causing them to leak. These changes can lead to paralysis, internal bleeding, and bleeding of the heart, respiratory, and kidney failure. You know, this idea of when we're poisoned by something like a snake's poison, we better hope that we get to some anti-venom very quickly because our body starts to shut down internally. You might look at someone on the outside and not necessarily be able to tell that they've been bitten by something venomous or poisonous, maybe at the point of contact. But other than that, the real damage is going on inside. And I don't know about you, but when I was younger, and I don't know if this still exists in schools today, probably not, but Remember the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And nothing could be further from the truth, James is saying. The tongue is full of deadly poison. That's the thing that gets into you and starts to do its damage internally. That's the power of words when we speak them, not aligning with what Scripture says to people in our lives. And I can prove that the tongue is full of deadly poison right now. How many of you still remember something that someone said to you that was damaging when you were young, and I'll be the first to raise my hand. People say to things to us with their tongue, with their mouth, and it sticks with us for a lifetime at times. I've met people that are still dealing with overcoming fear and damage and destruction that has come from words said to them when they were children. And I can think about the things that people said to me in my life, and I I can attest to the deadly poison of the tongue. Fortunately, I can also attest to the power of encouragement. I know this has been kind of a heavy message, right? It's a lot of doom and gloom about the tongue. Well, I'm going to give you, we're in the cellar, right? I'm going to creak the cellar door a little bit open to give you some light, right? That encouraging words can also lift people up for a lifetime. Okay, now I'm going to kick you back into the cellar and close the door. Let's take a look at the last four verses of our passage today, starting in verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I believe what he's saying is when something is designed to produce something specific, we diagnose the health of that thing by what it's actually producing. Let's write down point four like this. Inspect your speech to diagnose your heart. Your heart as a redeemed believer in Christ is designed as a new heart to produce something, to produce righteousness. And we can diagnose the health of our heart, by what's coming out of our mouth. That's the analogy that James is using here. We diagnose the health of a tree like we talked about last time. By what? It's fruit. We diagnose our heart by the words that come out of our mouth. And James is highlighting three examples here. A Christian who praises the Lord, cursing those who created him. A complete irony. And then he says a spring not consisting consistently providing the right water source. We should be consistent in, in seeing righteous behavior coming from our mouth. Are we going to be perfect? No, but there should be a consistency. It shouldn't be so off the wall that sometimes we're getting fresh water and sometimes we're getting salt water. No, the nature and consistency of our life should be that of the people that are closest in our life Say no, his words align with who he is in Christ. And a plant, he says, a plant's inability to produce fruit other than what it's designed produce A plant can't produce fruit other than what it was designed to produce. And a Christian can't produce fruit other than what their redeemed heart is designed to produce. So I want to inspect our speech a little bit right now. As we wrap up, I want to do an exercise with you. So I just want you to think about this. I want you to imagine that I somehow was able to obtain a transcript of everything that you've said over the last six months, okay? Got this thing printed out, super long scroll of everything that you've said over the last six months. Now, it's important to note this. It includes all of the words that have come out of your mouth, but it's also going to include all the texts that you've sent. It's going to include all of your Facebook posts, all of your tweets, and everything that you've typed online. And the reason why is because those things don't come from anywhere other than your heart as well. You see, when James wrote this, there was no such thing as the internet. There wasn't social media. But when we type words communicating who we are, communicating something to someone online, it's coming from your heart. Make no mistake. And those words, they are eternal. Just like the words that come out of our mouth. And we will be held accountable to those. That needs to be more daunting to the Christian church, in my opinion. We're way too comfortable saying what we would never say out loud online because there's no accountability. We need to understand there is. It may be delayed, but there's accountability for those words. And the last thing we want to be is embarrassed before our Lord for what we have said online. Next, I went through this transcript, and I highlighted everything righteous and yellow. Everything righteous in yellow. And everything unwholesome, unkind, bitter, angry, in gossip, unloving, harsh, not tender, hard-hearted, corrupting, tearing down, and anything else not befitting as a child of God. I highlighted all that in red. Now, let's get this straight. No one, no one is going to have a transcript highlighted completely in yellow other than Jesus Christ. That's not going to be the case. But a child of God should not have a transcript with the majority in red either. And each red highlight should be followed by a yellow representing repentance. That's the pattern of our life. That's what James is talking about. That's how we diagnose our heart is to look at our words, and do an audit on what we're saying and what's coming out of our mouth. And these days, what's coming out of our fingers onto a screen. We need to be careful with our tongue and careful with everything that we communicate. And that might sound like a terrifying exercise for all of us, but it's not hypothetical. It's going to happen. Every word will be accounted for that we speak out of our mouths. And that's terrifying, but praise God that Jesus Christ has redeemed us. Perhaps that gives us even more of a weight of how amazing God's grace is that he saved us when we think about the sinful nature of our tongue. And secondly, praise God that we cannot lose our salvation. We need to repent when we sin and confess our sin of our tongue to the Lord. Now, does having righteous speech save you? No. No, just like we talked about having good works does not save you. But having righteous speech is evidence of a new heart. We need to understand that. It is evidence of a redeemed heart. Because every word that comes out of our mouth is generated in our heart. And perhaps this has brought some things to your attention, some things that maybe you're thinking about as you're mulling over what James is saying here in chapter 3. First of all, do you speak to your family in your home in a way that you would never speak in public? Has that become so comfortable to you that somehow your tongue has different rules inside of your home than maybe it does in public or in front of other people in the church? That shouldn't be so. Do you text passive-aggressively? And say hurtful things that you would never say out loud. Has texting or communicating in some sort of written form become a pathway for you to say things to your spouse or your loved ones in ways that you never would? This is something for the young people in in the room or hearing my voice to consider as you grow up. As you've been born into a world where texting has always existed. Have you considered this? Have you considered what it means to write words on a screen and send them to somebody? I think you should. Do you post online with a different mindset than what you say out loud? Are you suffering with, and I came up with this this week, I think I'm going to copyright it, I think it's going to go viral, Instagram story syndrome. Instagram story syndrome, where you post online as if everything is going to be gone after 24 hours. I think sometimes we speak like that. Sometimes we post things like that with that mindset that, hey, I'm going to say this and It's just going to be gone into the nether at some point down the road, and and it's okay. I can be more aggressive. I can be more unkind. I can say things that hurt people just a little bit more because it's only temporary. It's not, as we've learned today. And wherever you're at, my prayer is that you take the tongue seriously. It's far more dangerous than the lion at the circus show. But I fear sometimes we let our tongue run free like a domestic cat. Just letting it do its thing, not really thinking about what it's up to. Let's be mindful and prayerful about how to cage our tongues like we've discussed today, especially in a world that grows darker and more provocative. The world is going to try to provoke you, Christian, to say the wrong things, to speak in a way that's unbecoming of a Christian. Don't give in to that temptation. In the word of James, let's be quick to hear and slow to speak. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder of how powerful and destructive the tongue can be. Lord, that when we are a redeemed Christian, we are changed from the inside, but we still have a sinful flesh. And part of that sinful flesh, Lord, is our tongue. Help us to recognize that so we don't grow naive to the damaging power of the tongue. Lord, help us to be the most prayerful we've ever been as a church in the life of this church, the most prayerful any of us have ever been in our walk with you, Jesus. Let us use our tongues for the greatest possible use of praising and glorifying you, worshiping you with our tongues. Help us to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we think about Easter. Help us to be caught saying those things, explaining How you came, lived the perfect life, and died a death in our place, paying for our sins. And then you rose again, defeating death. And if we put our trust in you, the kind of trust that says you're in charge, you're in control, I'm obedient to you as my Savior and King. We turn from our sin and put our trust in you. We can be free from the bondage of sin, both now and for eternity. Lord, help us to say those things. Help us to be caught up in that discussion. Lord, a hundred years from now, help us to be proud of the way that we stewarded over this mouth that you've given us. What a privilege it is to even communicate and speak on your behalf, not on the behalf of our flesh. Lord, I pray that you would protect this church. Help unify us. Help us to be loving with our tongues. As Pastor Ben prayed and preached about last week. Help us to be loving. Help us to be known by our love. As people come here in a couple of weeks that don't normally set foot in a church. Help us, help us to be so loving that they walk away saying that's the biggest thing that they realize. About Compass Bible Church. Yes, we teach the word of God faithfully. But man, were they loving. Most people I know that teach the Bible faithfully. They're very cold. But these people were loving. Their walk matched their talk. Lord, let that be said of us always. Protect us as we go out now to live our lives and apply the word that you have spoken to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen.